Hey, guys. What's up? That was like a, hi. Like, isn't it awesome that we're gathered up here? Uh, coming together at the end of a long week, uh, at the start of another week, and uh, to come together here in this place uh, is uniquely um, powerful and special. Uh, not because we make it uniquely powerful and special, but because uh, it is something that God uh, said we should never neglect doing uh, because it is the opportunity in which we who follow Jesus come together uh, to be stirred up and spurred on toward love and good deeds. And that stirring up and spurring on happens because we experience the reality of Christ through one another. Uh, and we experience and are reminded of the realities of Christ through the truths that we declare to one another through our singing and our worship that we lay before our King again uh, so that we both honor him and he reminds our souls uh, of the things that matter, that he matters and that he is the one that we come here uh, to uh, be, be set on again, uh, fix our eyes on again. So it, it's, a, it's a big deal that we're here together. Uh, it's not just a, hey, we gather up for church. It is the very essence of the rhythm of scripture that says we got to come together so that we might remember that which is now the truth by which we live and that we wouldn't forget. So I'm super psyched to be here with you guys and very excited about what we get to travel through today as we come to the end of this beautiful letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. So for many of you, I'm sure, coming to the end of a letter like this, uh, if you've been around Mosaic for a while, uh, you're kind of used to us starting letters and ending letters. And so this is another one we kind of close out. If you're fairly new to the story, uh, then this might be the very first time you come to an end of a letter. And so for you, it might be something like, oh, okay, Philippians is done. What's next? But for me, this moment in time uh, is often a space that's a little beautiful and brutal uh, because we have spent a great deal of time uh, walking the streets of Philippi in many ways as we've gotten to know the city and the people in it and why Paul was writing and what their hearts were and how they function. And we're kind of leaving that space behind and moving on to another. And so there's a bit of grieving for me. Uh, personally, also, there are certain uh, books in the Bible, certain letters uh, that have for most of my journey with Jesus been favorites of mine. Now, of course, as we've traveled through so many, many others have become favorites along with them. But there are these kind of standout ones that were favorites a long time ago that I have waited uh, well past a decade to get to. And Philippians is one of those. And then we got to it. And now we're kind of done with it. And I have this kind of feeling like it's going to be like 20 years before I can come back to this and preach it again. So there is a bit of sadness. Um, but far outweighing the sadness is this extraordinary joy that we now have another beautiful part of scripture that we have had the opportunity together to embed into our hearts, to, to, to have it dwell there. Uh, you know, uh, Paul actually was the one that wrote uh, in Ephesians saying, uh, may the word of God dwell richly in your hearts, like live in you. 
and and we talk about that a lot, but the reality is it's not necessarily a truth by which we are experientially living often. But when we have traveled as we have through a portion of scripture like we have in Philippians for nine, ten months, digging down into every nuance, we get here and we're like, this is dwelling now, folks. And so we have this incredible reality that we get to walk around now with uh, all the truths of the book of Philippians dwelling within us, accessible to God to speak to our hearts as he sees fit by his spirit because they now are in us. So super excited to close this book out. Now to close this book out, um, we are dealing with three little verses. Uh, And the three little verses uh, is a little greeting at the end of Philippians. Like, hey, um, How's it going? Uh, you know, greet everyone there and everyone here says hi. Grace to you. Like that's what we're about to do today. So you kind of go, well, did we not just do it? Like it would seem that way, wouldn't it? But as I have said uh, on many occasions before and on our continued journeys uh, through scripture, discover this over and over and over again. Uh, God did not ever, not for a second, waste a single letter in this sacred and living thing that he calls his word. Not a single letter, not a single word, not a single sentence is just thrown in here because it's just a greeting or just an introduction or just to this or just to that. Every single part of what is in here matters. It is sacred and it has something waiting to be mined and discovered. And what you will see tonight, I hope, is that this little greeting at the end of this letter is anything but a little greeting. But within it lies some of the most powerful and beautiful empowerment and encouragement to the church in Philippi and also to us that Paul is leaving with us as the Spirit of God inspires him. But for us to realize the depths that these three seemingly little silly verses have within them, we do need to gain a quick uh, context, a quick remembrance, if you will, of how these verses will now pull together into the space. And so this particular journey today, uh, just a heads up, if you'd like, have your Bibles ready, and you're like, which three verses is it? I'm ready. Buckle up and wait just a little bit, because about half the sermon is just the introduction today. And so we're going to spend about half, maybe two thirds of our time uh, setting the context, introducing the sermon, and then we'll go into the verses toward the end and have the sermon itself, which means the whole thing will actually be the sermon. So here we go. Okay. Uh, It is important. Important though, if again, we're going to experience these three verses as they ought to be, that we are at the closing of Philippians reminded of all that we have traveled through. So the city of Philippi, uh, if you remember, if you were here and you've heard multiple times since, uh, sits in northern Macedonia, what is now Eastern Europe. Uh, It sits on the Aegean Sea. Uh, So Paul, when he traveled on his third missionary journey, Uh, He left uh, Antioch. He went through the region of Galatia. He went up north, started traveling west. He wanted to go to Bithynia, uh, but the Spirit of God said, nope, not there. So he then went south. He wanted to go into Asia Minor. The Spirit of God said, nope, not that way. So he kept heading west until he hit the Aegean Sea, crossed over into Macedonia. And the first city that he uh, encountered there was the city of Philippi. So in the region of Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, that kind of whole run right down there, uh, the very first church that was established, biblical community that was established, that Paul established in Macedonia was the church in Philippi. So a dear space for him. 
When Paul was in Philippi, uh, if you remember, Philippi was a city uh, where a, a, a great deal of, of Roman hierarchy retired to. So high-end politicians, high-end military leaders, uh, if they were loyal to Rome, they would get land in Philippi and they would retire tax-free. And so Philippi was a city uh, that had a great and deep nationalism to Rome. Uh, Rome was their lo- beloved nation and the emperor was their beloved king and they would die for that nationalism. And when Paul was in Philippi and he preached the gospel of this King Jesus with this kingdom, you can imagine that did not go so well in Philippi uh, when it encountered Roman nationalism. And so the people of Philippi that became believers and are now the church ongoingly since Paul left Philippi many years before this letter is written, they have continued to experience the reality uh, of the clash between the kingdom of God and King Jesus and the kingdom of Rome and the emperor. And so uh, Paul, in writing this letter, is writing the letter in response to the gift that was sent from Philippi with Epaphroditus to Paul, a financial gift uh, to help him in his imprisonment. So this is a thank you note. But since Philippi and the church there is struggling with this collision, as always, Paul writes so much more than a thank you and unpacks for them what it is like for us to live on planet Earth with the cultures of planet Earth when we are now people belonging to the kingdom of God and we serve our King Jesus and what that looks like. And that has been what this book has been about. So, where did this book begin? Uh, Paul, uh, when he introduces uh, the, the beginning of the letter, uh, he, it is a little moment of gratitude. He's like, man, th- so grateful for your partnership in the gospel. A thank you for the gift in many ways, because this is a thank you note. Thanks at the beginning, thanks at the end, everything else in between. But in this particular thank you, as Paul writes this beautiful moment of thank you, He does something else here that sets the foundation for all that will come in the rest of this book so that as we are called as followers of Jesus into this incredibly high calling that Philippians calls us into, this overwhelming reality of what it means that we are to live as Christ followers on this planet, he starts uh, right off the bat reminding us that anything we will become, anything we will accomplish, anything we will do for the sake of Christ, we do because he is faithful to us and has done for us what is necessary. And he says it this way, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. So who begins the work in us? That was good. I mean, I like it. One of you whispered the name Jesus. But um, just know for the rest of this time together, if I pause and I go, who? it's likely going to be Jesus that comes next because there's going to be a lot of Jesus coming up in the rest of this letter. Okay, so who starts the work in us? Jesus, that's right. And who continues the work in us? Jesus. And who completes the work in us? Jesus. That's right. So we don't start it. We are not left to continue it and we don't finish it. Uh, Folks, remember this. And we say this sometimes, but we can never say it enough. Uh, We are not on this planet as Christ followers proving our faithfulness to Jesus. We are on this planet as Christ followers, having him prove his faithfulness to us over and over again. And that is part of where Paul begins. 
He's doing this. He's completing it. He'll finish it. And so for the rest of the letter now, he's going to go, since he's doing that, uh, what, what can you then jump in and be a part of? So he starts out with that beautiful reality and then he jumps right into his own story. And, and, and Paul, starting in verse 12 through verse 26, says, hey, you guys heard I'm in prison. You may think, as I'm sure makes sense, that uh, being in prison is a great burden that I'm stuck with. And it's, uh, it, it's holding me back from the great work of God. Because remember, Paul was on his way to Spain uh, in order to preach the gospel to the uh, ends of the earth. And now he's stuck in Rome in prison. And so uh, from a human perspective, we might say, oh man, what a bummer. You got stuck in Rome and it's holding you back from the great mission of Spain. And Paul's like, ah, not so much. Yes, I'm stuck in Rome. Yes, I'm stuck in prison. But it turns out that the very circumstances that seem like they are thwarting the work of God are in fact circumstances through which God is working. Paul's point isn't that God wants him in prison. Paul's point is wherever you find yourself, if you think where you find yourself is holding you back from what God is wanting to do, God is working where? Everywhere. And in every circumstance, so whether you are in prison, stuck in Rome, or in Spain preaching the gospel, God is at work. And Paul says, it turns out while stuck in Rome here in prison, it has advanced the gospel even to the Roman guard, which is incredible. So I am not stuck. My story is now his story, not mine. And so wherever I find myself, what Ever circumstances I'm in, the question isn't, why am I here? The question isn't, why aren't you doing what you said you would? The question isn't, why can't I be there? The question is simply, God, what can I do for you here? What can I do for you here? Here's where I am today. Here's where I am. I got a job. I lost a job. I, I got the role. I didn't get the role. I jumped in. I didn't jump in. I, I, I'm in a wonderful place. I'm in a terrible place. Question remains the same. What can I do for you here? Because where is God at work? Everywhere. And so Paul goes, man, that's my story. Uh, We are now people who live with a story that belongs to Jesus. And so uh, now he moves from his own story. And in uh, chapter one, verse 27, he says, so Philippians, let us live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel and the call on our lives. And then he goes into this beautiful section in Philippians where he basically says to the church in Philippi, to those who follow Jesus, this, From now on, remember this, that since you belong to Jesus, your calling on this planet is to have your life shaped by the kingdom of God and King Jesus, not by the kingdom of earth and whatever cultural context you live in. We, as Christ followers, are not to gain our information to transform, shape, or mold us from the culture around us. We are to gain that from the word of God, understanding the kingdom of God and the king who reigns there, Jesus. And so Paul says, get to know this kingdom, get to know this king and have him shape you. Don't get to know this culture and have it tell you what is good and what is not. 
And this is a good word for the Philippians. It is a good word for us. We are to be transformed, shaped by, molded by, and our way of life should be informed by the kingdom of God and King Jesus, not the kingdom of America uh, or the kingdom of earth and whatever king we happen to have reigning on the planet at this moment. And then Paul moves on from there and he says, okay, so who is this king that we are to be shaped by? And he writes this little poem or hymn, whatever you might want to call it, that is an extraordinary summary of who Jesus is and of what Jesus has done. Like Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 is an amazing summary of the gospel. This little section, uh, Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 through 11, is an amazing summary of Jesus as the gospel. And what does it say? Uh, it speaks of Jesus's incarnation. That is that he became man like us, crawled into a human body. That's incarnation. It speaks of his incarnation. It speaks of his life. It speaks of his death. It speaks of his resurrection. And it speaks of his exaltation. So in a single quick bound from verse 6 to 11, Paul is like, here is our king. He is incarnate. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose for us. And he is exalted above everything and everyone. This is the king that is informing your life. Worthy, certainly, of following. And not only does he, in those verses, very quickly give us an extraordinary glimpse of this king that we follow, but he also speaks to the attitude of this king, saying, this king Jesus, remember, what makes the fact that he came for us and died for us partly so extraordinary is that his attitude was the opposite of our attitude as humans. In our very best scenario, we did the opposite of what Jesus did here. So what does it say Jesus did? It says Jesus emptied himself of his prerogatives. What are prerogatives again? They are the rights we have that are tied to our status. So unlike just general human rights, when you get a particular status and then you get certain rights by that status, those are called prerogatives. And Jesus emptied his prerogatives, setting aside his status so that he could become a servant for us. We, human beings, do the opposite of that. And at our very best, we proved it. Because Adam and Eve, when they were on this planet before the fall of mankind, before they were infected by sin, so they couldn't blame sin, like, oh, it's because I have sin. They didn't have it. And when given the opportunity to take rights that they had no business taking and to disobey God voluntarily by saying, I want the knowledge of good and evil and I want to become like God, they chose that when we were as a human race at our best. And so here he says, at your best, you chose to take prerogatives. At his time on our planet, he emptied himself of his actual prerogatives that he actually had the right to keep. And then Paul says, this king that we follow, let us have the same attitude as this king. And he calls all of the Philippian saints into this space and says, man, let your attitude be the same as his. This is our calling to be like our King Jesus. And then he gives two examples. He speaks to Timothy and he says, look at Timothy, for example. Timothy puts others' needs ahead of his own. That's just like Jesus. Be like Timothy, who's like 
That was good. That's good. Who's like Jesus? And then he's like, and let's talk about Epaphroditus, who's actually the one that brought your gift to me. He also does things like Jesus. Look at his life. He risked his life to bring that gift to me. And he set himself aside for the sake of God, what God was doing. That's what Jesus is like. Look at Epaphroditus and follow him because he is like Jesus. And then Paul moves from there and says, as we look at Timothy, who's like Jesus, and Epaphroditus, who's like Jesus, because they're following Jesus, and you should follow them as they follow Christ, look at my life also. And in chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 1, Paul speaks to his story. And he says, I had status. I had position. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And I thought that all mattered. But it turns out what I've discovered is that all the status in the world that gave me all the prerogatives in the world turned out to be of zero value. And so I have abandoned them. Now it's interesting when Paul speaks in this chapter because in, he's not saying, look at me, I like Jesus had these the status and these prerogatives and they were awesome, but I emptied myself of them like Jesus did. No, he's saying what I actually discovered is that they were useless. Let's just pause here for a second because, you know, we are Westerners mostly in some version of culture, and in the Western culture that includes America, uh, we have been bred from the second we are born to be people that chase after status, any kind of status. Maybe your status comes from uh, intelligence or physical uh, prowess or talent and gifting, education, uh, competency, uh, the ability to do certain things. Maybe your status comes from from uh, stability and wealth or notoriety. Maybe it comes from a position of some kind or a certain reality that you get that nobody else does. We are constantly in the pursuit of status. And because status gives us some rights and prerogatives that set us in a system of greater value than someone else. And so we extract our value from our status and we relish the rights that come with that status. From the second we're born, we're told you can do whatever you want to do. You can be whatever you want to be. Half of you in the room probably went, and? So allow me to burst that bubble for you for a second. You cannot do whatever you want to do and you cannot be whatever you want to be. I mean, it's just a fact. It's not even like a Christian thing. You just can't. But we have been bred to believe this. You have the right to be whatever you want. Do what you love and love what you do. Don't ever do what you don't love and don't do what you, all that stuff. Folks, it's, it's not in here. It's not in here. Much of our calling in life on this planet, we are on mission for a different kingdom and a different king. You'll do plenty of stuff you're not going to love and you'll have to do plenty of stuff that isn't going to be any fun. And whatever you find yourself doing, what makes it valuable is not that you love it and it's awesome. It's that you are doing it on behalf of your king. And so we are a people that are obsessed with status and happiness. And what Paul is saying in chapters 3 verse 1 through 4 verse 1 is, Man, I had all of that. And you know what you find at the end of that road? The same emptiness you find at the beginning of that road. You think it's going to make it all okay, but then you find out status and prerogatives don't make you any more or less valuable than you were before you had status or prerogatives. And so what he says is what I have discovered is that the only thing that makes me matter is that Jesus loves me, died for me and said that I matter to him and that therefore I matter, period. 
And so I'm putting all of my eggs of value into this King Jesus. And I am abandoning the pursuit of my status and prerogatives. So Paul says, man, listen, for those of us that know Jesus, may our life be a life that is in continued pursuit of making Jesus more and everything else less. That we would be obsessed with who we are in Christ and what we do for Christ more than who we are to those around us or because of what we've accomplished. And then he says, not that I have already attained this, but this is what I strive to. What a beautiful gift to all of us and to the church in Philippi that Paul would say, what I'm not telling you is get there as quickly as you can where you were obsessed with Jesus and nothing else. Oh, it's taken me my whole life, Paul says, and I'm not even there yet. But just because you're not there doesn't mean that you can't wake up every morning and say, today I strive to know more of Christ and less of everything else. Today, when my soul is disrupted because I didn't get the role I wanted, I get to go back in the quietness of night and say, why am I so disrupted by something that holds no value? But I have made it valuable. Why is Jesus not enough for me? And then we wrestle there. And so we go. So we pursue Jesus being enough. And so Paul says all of that. And then what? In chapter four, verse two, he says, okay, That's a lot of ground to cover. That's a high calling for all of us to abandon the very things that have typically given us value and to find it in Jesus, to live our lives for a new king and a new kingdom in a hostile planet and culture against that king or kingdom where when we stand for the things he stands for, people will not like us at best. At worst, they will call us terrible things. And then he says this, this stuff gets real practical. This calling isn't just for the big giant spaces of great and extraordinary mission. Before he gets into the don't be anxious about anything and think on excellent things. Where does he start? Out of this big giant calling. He talks to two women in Philippi in the church. It's like, hey, you two, love you. He has great respect for them. You can tell they're dear friends. And he partnered with them in ministry and leadership. And he calls them out. Not in like a bad way. He's just like, hey, I heard you two have a conflict not getting along so well. You should get it straightened out. Do you know why you should get it straightened out? Because life ain't about you. It's about what we're displaying about Jesus. And so this giant thing in Philippians of being Christ followers and living for him isn't about rushing off to Spain and evangelizing all of the known world. It's about working out conflicts with the person right next to you that you're not getting along with. That's where it starts right here. We got to figure our stuff out because where the beauty of the gospel applies is everywhere in the simplest moments of your life and the grandest things you'll ever be part of. Whether it is right here in the everyday or the adventures that await, there the gospel should inform you. And so he says, ladies in Philippians, uh, work your stuff out. That's what the gospel calls you to. And then he goes, and for all of us, when we're anxious about anything, frankly, when we're nervous about the big things or the little things, man, bring it to Jesus and set your minds on his kingdom and the things of him. And there, when your mind is set on him, there you will find peace. Because if your peace is set on anything but the kingdom of God and the king who reigns there, it is as fragile as the thing you're setting it on. The greatest set of circumstances you will ever have, the greatest resources you will ever hold, the greatest relational dynamics that will ever be yours are as fragile as the wind changing. 
So you may have them for a day or a month or a year or a decade or a lifetime, but they are fleeting and can pass like that. So your anxiety will remain because you know that the very thing on which you set your stability is by definition unstable. But when it is Jesus and his kingdom, that is an eternal reality. And there you will be safe in peace. So set your minds on those things. Small things and big things, let the gospel inform you. And then in chapter 4, verse 10 through 23, as he closes out the letter, where does he go back where he started? Thanks so much for sending Epaphroditus with the gift. That's incredible. We talked about that last week. But he does something else here that is beautiful as he talks about how the story of God is now transforming his own story. Pay close attention here. Because what Paul is about to say is to show us all and the church in Philippi that not only is his imprisonment good for the gospel and its advancement because often we do that. I wanted to go to Spain. I had these great plans for a great adventure and now I'm stuck in prison right here in a role I don't want to play. But at least the gospel's advancing here. That makes me happy. That's good. That's awesome. But now Paul's going to say, but there's more. Prison hasn't only been a place where God advanced his kingdom through me while I'm stuck here, it has actually become the greatest gift for me as well. Not a burden, but a gift. And he says, in this place where I am, here I have had prison not be my burden, but my teacher. And what has it taught me? As I have suffered for Christ, I have learned the secret of being content that he is enough in every circumstance. Let's pause here for a second, Westerners, who have been bred and born to avoid suffering at all costs because it is opposed to God and evil. When it comes your way, run away, pray it away, make it go away. Not that any of us should go chase after suffering. Believe me, it will come find you in time all by itself. But when it comes, trials and tribulations, suffering and struggle, what Paul is telling us is not the curse you think it is. It was intended to be destructive and it is intended to be a curse, but God's redemption of struggle and trials and suffering is extraordinary. He will make those things the very teachers that school our souls to a place of contentment because we will learn there how to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. And so he says this, It turns out sitting in prison here, I have learned things of contentment I never knew possible. James, who wrote the very first letter out to the early New Testament church, started his letter, that's why I remember that, where he said uh, to the 12 tribes scattered all over, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials or tribulations of many kinds, because you know that it is the refining of your faith that develops perseverance. And perseverance, when it finishes its work, makes you mature and complete, lacking nothing. What gets us to a place where we lack nothing? Is it God providing all the resources we could ever wish for on this planet? Is it God providing the love of our life and our soulmate who will be with us forever and never hurt our feelings again? Is it that God would provide a set of circumstances so extraordinary for the rest of our life that we will live in a bliss and wonder of a fairy tale? No, none of those things will leave us in a place of lacking nothing. What will leave us in a place of lacking nothing is the work of the schoolmaster of suffering teaching our souls that no matter where we find ourselves, Jesus will remain enough.
and we will never know his enoughness fully until we have nothing else but him. Paul says, I have been schooled in prison and the schooling has birthed this in me. I have learned the secret of being content. I can do all things through the one who strengthens me in all circumstances. Wow. May suffering become something we notice as the gift that it is, as it is redeemed by God to become that which teaches our soul to be content in him alone. And it is at this point that Paul now writes the final greeting so we can start our sermon now. Grab your Bibles and turn with me. Don't worry, we don't have 30 more minutes to go. Though this greeting is beautiful and rich, it is short and quick. Watch. At the end of all that, Paul now says, greet every saint, verse 21 of chapter four of the book of Philippians, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. There is our first beauty to be mined. See, when Paul often greets in his other letters, uh, he greets in either a very general form, hey, to all the saints, usually at the beginning of a letter, and then toward the end when he's kind of finalizing his greeting, he kind of says, hey, hi, everyone. Uh, oh my gosh, Sarah and, and Billy and, and Mary, it's so great to, to hear you're doing well. He often just kind of uh, talks to a couple of individuals within the church because it's a personal letter. But here he doesn't say, greet all the saints. And by the way, say hey to the following people. He says, greet, you can read it, it's right there. Every saint. What an interesting way of saying that. It's like Paul, very uniquely in this letter, says what I've just written about, about Jesus and about our life with Jesus in this letter. Uh, who do I want you to go around and greet and say, this is for you? How many of the saints? Every single one of them. See, it, it sounds different, doesn't it? When you say greet all the saints, it's like a collective versus saying this, greet every single one of them. It's almost the feeling that Paul's saying, go, go, go walk down after you read the letter and go one at a time and go, Paul says hi, Paul says hi, Paul says hi. This letter's for you, Paul says hi. Letter's for you, Paul says hi. Letter's for you, Paul says hi. Because Paul here is saying, if you became a Christ follower in the last seven minutes, this letter is for you. If you have been a Christ follower for 130 years, this letter's for you. It doesn't matter where you fall on the spectrum of following Jesus. How many of the saints should hear this and say, this is a letter for you. Greetings to you. Every single one of them. It's a unique way that Paul writes this greeting. And then look what he says. The brothers who are with me greet you. How many of the brothers do the, the people in Philippi know? I mean, they know Epaphroditus. We know that. Likely, they don't know a whole lot of others. They might know Timothy. We know that because he mentioned Timothy. But he's not like, hey, all the brothers here greet you. Everyone that's around me greets you. I love this because Paul, in the very next sentence, he says this. In fact, all the saints greet you that are here with me. So look what he's saying. Everybody here that knows and loves Jesus is saying hi to you, Philippi. Why would he say this? Instead of saying, Timothy says hi, Epaphroditus says hi, go to the other letters. That's usually how he does it. It's very personal. Hey, the people you know say hi to you because they miss you. Here's like, actually everybody that's around me says hi to you. And you're like, uh, who are these people? I don't know, but here's what's awesome. They know of you. They know your story. See, this whole letter, Paul's saying, man, remain faithful, stay the course, follow Jesus well, because your story matters to who? 
to people you don't even know. All the brothers here are like, tell the Philippians hi, we've heard about them, it's incredible. They're so faithful in a crazy city that's uh, full of Roman loyals that are, that are trying to kill them all. Man, what an awesome place. Often if you live for Jesus, it will feel quite alone and it will seem as though nobody cares or it doesn't make a difference to anybody else. And the truth is, if the only person that makes a difference to is Jesus, then that is plenty enough. But that's not what happens. Jesus is better than that and bigger than that. Every part of your story as you live it out for Jesus is impacting someone, perhaps many of the brotherhood you don't even know yet. And Paul says, all the folks here know of your story and say hi. They're so thrilled to hear about what God is doing in and through you guys. Keep it up. And then he says this, oh, and by the way, especially the saints that are part of, let's take a look. Now he specifies, especially those of Caesar's household. What an interesting thing for Paul to say. Hey, everybody here that knows Jesus says hi, because they all know your story. And you know who's especially psyched about you guys? The folks in Caesar's household that know Jesus. Why would Paul say that to them? Why do you feel like that might be important? Where do the Philippians live again? That's right, Philippi. Good job. But what is Philippi? It is a city where the loyalty of Rome runs deep. And I'm sure that the Philippians in many occasions thought the hard ground that we have to face with the gospel is harder than most. Maybe like working at a company that stands in many ways in places that make it hard for you to make Jesus front and center and king because the company goes, his values don't align with ours. A few do, many don't. And you're like, oh, it's very hard here. I know. Like the Philippians, they're like, man, we're in a hard place. And so here's what Paul says. You know where else there are some saints around here in Rome? What's the only harder place than Philippi? The heart of Rome. And what's the hardest place in Rome that you would ever expect people to come to know Jesus? Caesar's household. In this day and age of Paul's writing, they didn't mean by Caesar's household family members. They could have. It includes family members. But they basically mean anyone that is involved in managing the home of Caesar. The guards, the cooks, the nannies, the whole shebang, they're all part of Caesar's household. And some of them have come to know Jesus. And so he's like, those, those folk greet you. They're in his house right now. They know Jesus. What does that say to the Philippians? When you preach the gospel in Philippi and you feel like it's impossible because there's no way these people will ever come to know Jesus. Who's come to know Jesus in Rome? People in whose household? Caesar's. When you are alone on the, in the break rooms and the spaces of the company you work for and you're like, how do I even begin to make Jesus big here? Because it's just going to be super weird. They'll never believe. Remember that Paul said, oh, you know who else greets you all? Mosaic, WDW, the saints in Caesar's household. You think the folks in your company are hard to access with the gospel? Try Rome, try Caesar's household. And yet there were saints. See what Paul's saying is, since I ended up in prison right here in Rome, guess where I started preaching the gospel? Right here in prison. And guess who came to know Jesus? He said it in the beginning of Philippians, some guards. And guess what they apparently did? Talk to other guards. And guess which guards know Jesus now? The guards that are in Caesar's household. And guess what? Some of them told other people. And guess what? Those saints greet you now. 
Wherever you find yourself, wherever I find myself, there, in that moment, on that day, whatever it is that you are in the middle of, there you have the chance to make the gospel known by your life and by what your words are, by sharing it. And since Paul did, people in Caesar's household know Jesus now. And for the Philippians, what an encouragement that would have been. And for us, what an encouragement that is. There are people across your road and in your break rooms waiting to encounter Jesus and they don't even know it. And you are there full of the spirit of God with the gospel of Jesus on your lips. Do not be afraid. Be bold, be kind, but be bold with the gospel. And then he ends with this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you your spirit. What a beautiful benediction, unique to this letter that Paul usually kind of just says, blessings to you. May, may God bless you and keep all the, but here's like, may the grace of Jesus Christ be where? With your spirit. And Paul ends here. Do you feel like the call of the letter of Philippians is huge? Do you feel like it's overwhelming? Do you feel like, oh my gosh, I, I have to have my attitude the same as Jesus. I have to follow Jesus. I mean, there's so many things I can't do. How would you do it? And tomorrow's tomorrow. It's like, I know it's impossible, but for the grace of Jesus, if he is close to you, then who is it that's doing the work? Jesus, who started it? Jesus, and who will finish it? Jesus, and who gets to try each day to be like Jesus, rise or fall, because he's got it covered whether you rise or fall. I do, and you do as Jesus followers. You are not here to prove your faithfulness to Jesus. He is proving his faithfulness to you. And since he's faithful to you, you get to be faithful to him. You don't have to, you get to. Because what did he say? Oh, I'm doing stuff in you that's going to make impossible things possible. That's going to make you someone who can have my attitude and can be like me and can boldly see my kingdom advance in you and through you. This is our calling. The letter of Philippians comes to us as a gift to say, wherever you find yourself, remember, your story is not yours anymore. Your story belongs to Jesus because you belong to Jesus and his story for you is better than any story you would have ever made for yourself. So live for him now. And whatever you find yourself in, there, right there each day, know this. You can be a representer of the kingdom of God and King Jesus right there. Tomorrow morning, tonight, best of circumstances, worst of circumstances. And by the way, if they happen to be the worst, look carefully, deeply, because there your schoolmaster is teaching your soul to depend on the only one that will ever be stable. The worst of things are often to those who follow Jesus, the best of gifts. If what we really want is contentment in Christ and not in things. This is the book of Philippians. Pray with me. God, thank you so much for the extraordinary joy that it is to know that you are more than enough for us. 
more than enough, more than we will ever need. And as we wrestle on this planet, as Paul did, with the constant tug and pull to find our value and our security and our safety and our well-being and our, and, and our joy in the things that are of our day, the status, the prerogatives, the, the, the values that we extract from. May you constantly and consistently, quietly tug our hearts away from those things and settle our souls on you and you alone. May we, as we grow and as time passes on this planet, find ourselves more and more obsessed, more and more captivated, more and more found in your kingdom and your story. God, we want to live our lives for you and we want you to be everything for us. We are not there yet. Take us there. Because there, there we are most free and there we are most profoundly participating in your kingdom of life expanding on this planet of death. We love you. We trust you. We thank you that you are doing the work in us and for us. And we want to be part of that work by trying each day with all our little hearts to trust you, obey you, follow you, and do things your way and be bold with that truth that is yours and your kingdoms. Spirit of God, be clear and near to our spirit so that we might be empowered by you to do the things you've called us to do. We love you, Jesus. Amen.